So welcome, everybody. It's so great to be here. Thank you. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I, I am Kate Middleton. So um, insert your favorite Kate Middleton joke there. Uh, I, I quite enjoy, particularly now that the other Kate Middleton has caught up and is also talking about mental health. I feel like I've been doing it for a while. And people take a lot more notice now, because if you hear that Kate Middleton's coming to talk on mental health, um, I, I'm always slightly concerned that people might be disappointed. And I, I might kick off the evening, and I'm just a big disappointment from the very beginning, because as my daughter says, it, it, I really don't look anything like her, and I'm much older. So that's, that's helpful, isn't it? Yeah, our kids always keep our feet on the ground. Um, who I am? So I am actually assistant pastor at a church not so far away, up at a church in Hitchin, uh, just up, up the motorway. Um, I'm also director of a national organization called Mind and Soul. There's a, there's a bunch of group of three of us who run that. And we are a national organization working with the church and encouraging the church to engage with this whole area of emotional and mental health. And we've been doing that for over a decade decade now. I've been working in mental health with the church now for sort of over 15 years as well. So it's great. It's, it's great for us to see so much more conversation around mental health, talking about these issues and how they affect us. What isn't so great is that we seem to be in a bit of a boom industry because mental health and issues with emotional health and struggles with things like stress and anxiety have become so much more common. So my, I have two kids. My daughter is um, 11, about to turn 12, so she's year seven. I have a, a son also who's five. But my daughter in particular, her class, she comes home every day with lists of people who she thinks I need to see. She's becoming like my PA. She could fill my time. She's like, well, there was this kid and she freaked out, mommy, in maths class today. I think she needs to see you, which I find fascinating because she doesn't listen to anything I say, but she clearly thinks that other people should. She finds it um, just baffling that people, people uh, will, will give up their evenings to come and hear me speak because she's quite often trying to get away from me when I want to speak to her. But anyway, this is a massively common topic. And um, it's one that affects us all. Some of us in particular are wired to be more anxious beings than others, but anxiety is something that can affect anyone at all. And I think when we address these issues, particularly anxiety, but anything to do with emotions that are causing trouble, probably the biggest question is, what, what's the point of them in the first place? If these emotions are so problematic, would we be better off just not to have them? Is there any purpose at all to anxiety? And I speak to a lot of people who are struggling with anxiety, and frankly, their aim and what they're hoping that I'll enable them to do is to eradicate all anxiety from their life because it's not the nicest emotion to experience but actually there is a purpose to all our emotions not just the 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 pleasant positive ones but also these awkward negative ones they have a really important purpose but still our tendency can be to think well the idea would be not to have them so um I think you've got a picture on your screens of one guy who had no emotions any Star Trek fans in the house tonight you can you can share there's hardly anyone here we're amongst friends okay fine don't admit it it's nearly as bad as the time I once told an archers joke in a church service and said who else listens to the archers and there was this deathly silence and then one person at the back put up her hand <laughs> it was very funny anyway Star 
Trek fans. I'll fill you in. So Spock was supposed to be this guy who had one human parent and one Vulcan parent, and Vulcans don't experience emotions. So the idea of this Star Trek thing was that Spock had all the human intellect and intelligence, but none of these pesky emotions. And if you watch the old Star Trek ones, because the old ones are the best, you'll see in all these catastrophes, these crisis situations, the humans are flailing around and they don't know what to do. But thank goodness for Spock with his calm rationality. He saves the day. But interestingly, there is a whole field of medicine and neuroscience that looks at people who genuinely have lost their emotions and they are a bit like Spocks. But these are not the people running the world. They're not the people who have an amazing intellect. They are utterly devastated by the absence of their emotions. The absence of an emotion like anxiety leaves you unable to function normally. So we have to appreciate that they're designed to do a job. So here's a little explanation for me of how I explain the job that emotions are supposed to do. So hopefully you have, yeah, you have your diagram. If you think of emotions as a bit like striking a match. So your brain strikes the match when it needs to tell you that something significant is going on in the world around you. So you live complex, complex lives. Human beings live very complex lives. And there is a part of your brain whose job is to scan the world around you continually for combinations of stimuli, events, um, stuff like that, that may indicate something significant is happening. Significant according to a goal that you have. So particularly for something like anxiety, let's say that you step out into the road and there's a bus coming right at you. Your brain, maybe you're chatting to a mate or these days you're probably on your phone and you're not looking, and your brain needs to signal to you that there's some significant stuff going on, and the way it does that is it triggers an emotion. And emotions have these two aspects to them, if you think about what it feels like to experience an emotion. There is a physical change. Your brain... Your brain triggers this system, this physiological system in your body, which transforms in a moment. It's incredibly clever. Almost every system within your body. So um, it changes the levels of glucose in your blood. It changes the, the levels of oxygen. It increases your heart rate. Your muscles become ready to work. There's this massive physical change. And one of the prime jobs of that physical change where anxiety is concerned is it's designed to grab your attention. So when you've stepped out into the road and you need to stop gassing away to the mate that you're talking to or look up from your phone, the, the changes of anxiety are designed to make you think, whoa, hang on, what's, what's going on? I suddenly I have this feeling, my stomach feels all churny and I feel fidgety and, and I'm, I'm feeling very alert and twitchy. And its job there is to get your attention. So once I had a, a hire car, some of you may have heard me tell this story before, and, um, and you know how when you have a hire car, a rental car, you have to, before you give it back, you have to go to the, the petrol station, you have to fill the tank back up, otherwise they charge you like a huge amount for this much petrol. So I went and I was filling the car up, and as usual I had 101 things, I was late, I was trying to think of these things and where I've got to be and what I've got to do, and I suddenly feel really anxious really, really like my stomach's turning. I'm like, whoa, literally, I'm looking around. What is going on? Why am I feeling this? And that's when I realize I'm putting the wrong fuel in the car. But my anxiety saved me. It caught me before I had done it. I just was about to press the thing. And it's like, whoa, stop, you idiot. It's like somewhere in your head, there is a calmer version of yourself saying, pay attention, 
because something's about to go on. So the physical change grabs your attention. Also, there's a bit of analytical thinking going on. So your brain is triggered to analyze the situation around you. What is it that's going on? What is it you need to pay attention to? And most importantly, is there a decision that you need to make here? Is there something you need to do or not? Do you need to act or don't you? So you can think of your brain as acting a bit like a smoke alarm. Who has a smoke alarm in their house? So when your smoke alarm goes off, its job is to alert you that something significant might be going on. It's really important because if you don't have one and your house starts to burn down, you could be happily sleeping away and not know anything about it. So just like a smoke alarm, anxiety has this crucial function in your brain of alerting you. It's like your early warning system. So we have to recognize, number one, there are key facts that I'll bring out tonight, which are sort of take-home things to remember. And this is number one. Anxiety is a crucial part of the normal functioning mind. So if you're sat here thinking, well, I have this weird, crazy thing about me. I have, I spoke to a student once who was telling me, um, who was chatting to me and she was, she was telling me about her dreams and her ambitions and the stuff she wanted to do. And then she started to, 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 to look really sad. And I'm like, what's the matter? These things sound great. She wanted to be a paramedic. I'm like, that sounds awesome. Go and be a paramedic. She's like, I can't. And I'm like, why not? She's like, I have anxiety. And I'm like, everyone has anxiety. If you didn't have anxiety, you'd be in really big trouble. What you mean is you're struggling a bit with anxiety, but we can, we can figure that out. And so I was able to work with her and help her to learn how to manage her anxiety. And she did great in her exams, and it's, doing, it's going well. But we have to recognize anxiety is not, in essence, a problem. It's not something you need to get rid of. It's not a sign that there is something wrong with you. It's part of the way that your brain was designed. But sometimes it causes problems. So what we're going to look at for the rest of the evening is to think about how and why does it cause problems and how, particularly, how do we get out of these sort of um, negative spirals that we can get stuck in with anxiety, where it becomes very quickly sometimes a very big problem. Because the thing with anxiety is that as well as that physical change being part of grabbing your attention, it has another role. So for two emotions in particular, the physical change has a very important secondary role, which is that it prepares you for action. So it's like you're on the starting blocks, you're ready to go, you're poised. You know when you see the runners and they're about to fire the starting pistol, the London Marathon was just yesterday, so you see people really poised, your muscles are tensed, you're ready to react. And anxiety triggers this system, which you'll have heard of, called the fight or flight system. So... Um, if you walk out of here, I remember saying this the last time I was here, if you walk out of here tonight and on the way back to your car, a bear jumps out from behind a car um, and, and attacks you, you've got a basic decision to make. Am I going to fight it or am I going to run away? What am I going to do, fight or flight? How am I going to deal with this situation? And then, of course, your thinking brain, meanwhile, is analysing it and accurately works out that it's Andy Croft in a bear suit or... Mike Pilavach, I don't know. I, I would use my own church, my own senior leader as the example there, but you insert whichever one of yours is most likely to be hanging around in a bear suit. <laughs> so your thinking brain has to analyze and work out what's actually going on. Now, a little word about truth for a minute, because this is very key to emotions when they cause problems. It's about the way that we respond to them and the type of information that they give us. So there are two types of fact in this world. 
there are some facts that are absolute truth. So if I, it's not a very exciting example, but if I got a tape measure and measured this chair, I could tell you that it is exactly 45 centimeters wide. I haven't actually measured it because I don't have a tape measure, but I could. And if you wanted to check whether I was right or not, you could also get a tape measure and you could come and measure the chair, couldn't you? That's absolute truth. But there's another type of fact that we experience all the time as human beings. So that might be if I said, it, or if, as you're sitting looking at me, you think, well, that's a, very, that's a nice colour. The jumper that Kate is wearing is a nice colour. Now, I can't measure that to tell you if it's true or not. I also like my jumper. But there's probably somebody else here thinking, well, I think it's a really rubbish colour. I don't like it at all. Why is she wearing it? It doesn't suit her at all. This isn't fact in the same way, is it? It's... What is it? It's, a, it's an opinion. And opinions are influenced by all sorts of things, by our experience, by our perspective on the world, um, by our mood and how we're feeling. You might be thinking, well, I, I've had a very bad day, so I don't like anyone's jumper. Sometimes our opinions are not that reliable. Now, which type of truth, which type of fact do you think emotions are? They're not necessarily facts, and sometimes we treat them as though they are telling us absolute truth. So your smoke alarm, think about it. The last time it went off, for how many people was the house actually burning down? Okay, I'm quite glad because I have done that, and somebody's been like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm really sorry. <laughs> so why was your smoke alarm really going off? Ours last went off because my daughter had tried to wedge an entire cinnamon bun into the toaster because she wanted to warm it up, but she wanted it crispy, not like it comes out in the microwave. Anyway, so emotions are not always that reliable. They, they tell you that something might be happening, not that it definitely, definitely is happening. And this is important to understand with anxiety because for a lot of us, you know, if you've ever had one of those smoke alarms, we lived in a rental property for a while and um, the smoke alarm there went off all, I mean, if you just turned on the gas, one of the gas rings, the smoke alarm went off. It was absolutely ridiculous. It was so oversensitive. It was forever going off. We were forever standing underneath it, flapping away. You know how you do. It's like, I didn't have to say anything. My kids would just pick up a placemat and start flapping at the smoke alarm. And some of you, your anxiety's like that. It's always flipping going off. It's too sensitive. Your anxiety is putting you on alert mode all the time. And actually, you don't need to be on alert mode. And we need to recognize that with anxiety, when we feel anxious, there's always a worst case scenario that we're worried about. But actually, your worst case scenario is not definitely going to happen. So the fact that you're feeling anxious does not mean that the worst is definitely going to happen. Your brain is alerting you to the fact that there's a possibility it might, but not saying that it definitely will. So when you're asked to stand up and give that talk at work or whatever it is that you have to do and you th your brain is like is freaking out at the, even the thought of standing up in front of those men, that number of people and you're thinking, well, these are the things that could go wrong. I could forget everything. I could make a total idiot of myself. They could not be interested in what I'm saying. Actually, that anxiety doesn't mean that any of those things are definitely going to happen. It's just telling you things that might happen. 
So we have to recognize the type of truth that we're dealing with here. It's giving you an opinion. It's giving you a warning of potential issues, not telling you definitely what will happen. And the thing is, is that when we realize that about anxiety, we realize that very often the problem isn't the anxiety, although it can be if it's being triggered too often, but often the real problem is how we react to our anxiety. Because we become very frightened of it. And over the years, not knowing how to respond to it in a positive way, it becomes more and more scary. And we start to run away. We're literally running scared from our own anxiety. Because when it happens and we start to feel anxious, we, we become even more anxious because we're feeling anxious and because of all these things that might happen. And it's just, it becomes overwhelming. And anxiety can spread. You know how I said that an emotion is like, striking a match. Anxiety can be like a forest fire that you start with a little match, but before you know, you've started to worry about it. And then it's keeping you awake. And then you're thinking of possible scenarios. And then suddenly your analytical thinking mind is not helping you because it's telling you all the things that could possibly go wrong. And it's spreading and spreading and spreading. And the problem with emotions like anxiety is that we can't just switch them off. Although it's helping you analyze stuff, the thing is, is that your thinking brain, your emotions are always switched on, but then your thinking brain actually isn't. It's, it's a weird thing. So let me tell you about another interesting feature of emo, all emotions, but particularly anxiety and anger, because they, they act in this specific way on this specific circuit. And let's go back to the scenario. You've walked out into the road and a bus is coming. So your brain triggers anxiety, which alerts you, grabs your attention. You're looking, you're analyzing the situation. Let's imagine that you dealt with that situation on an entirely analytical way. So you, uh, you have to calculate the speed of the bus, uh, time to potential impact, likelihood of severe injury, distance to that curb compared to distance to that curb, um, all which direction would be the best way for you to run. This is no use to you, is it? Because all the time that you're there doing all those clever calculations, bang, you got hit, game over. You know, I've played Frogger. Who grew up with a ZX Spectrum like I did? You know, I've played those games. Yeah, I know how that ends. If you don't get out of the way quick, you, it's game over. So your brain has a fast track way of getting you to react. If the situation that it's warning you about, the potential thing that might happen is serious enough, significant enough, then it can trigger a very quick reaction. So, yeah, so you see the red pathway here. And what it does is it sends this really quick response that triggers such a strong physical change that before you know what you've done, because the pathway that gets your thinking brain ticking is much slower, you have reacted. So this is good because we walk out into the road, a bus comes, you will jump back and you'll gasp and then you'll think, blimey, that was close because your thinking brain then catches up and thinks, what was I doing? Saved again by your fast track emotion system. It's also the same thing that happens when um, you walk into the kitchen and you see something on the floor and it looks like a spider. My son is absolutely terrified of spiders. I don't know why no one else in our family is, but he would freak out. He's running, he's screaming. He did it the other day. And um, it actually, when I went and had another look at it, it was um, a plastic one. It wasn't real. <laughs> And, but I couldn't persuade him to go and have a look. He was still like, get it out, get it out, get it out. So in the end, I had to put the plastic spider in the garden. And only then would he calm down. Because your thinking brain isn't thinking, it's freaking out. 
And there is a point in any emotion, if you think of an emotion on a 0 to 10 scale, and particularly anxiety and anger also, interestingly, would, would act like this. There's a point on that scale. So if you think naught is where you have no emotion at all, no anxiety at all, you're totally calm and chilled. Ten is like the worst anxiety you've ever had. You're totally freaking out. There's somewhere on that scale, it's usually about eight, where you will feel this emotional hijack start to kick in. So I call this the hijack zone. And it's because your analytical thinking brain is starting to switch off. It's starting to be bypassed. Your, your brain is starting to use this fast track route. It's thinking, don't waste time thinking, just get out of there, do something, react. And with anxiety, our instinctive reaction tends to be flight. Anger, frustration um, tends to be more about shouting, hitting, punching, action that way. But for anxiety, it is about running away. And it's very difficult then to be rational, to analyze what we're doing, what we're scared about, why we're scared. Because your whole brain is trying to tell you not to think about it, and you're stood there trying to think about it. What's interesting about this is that this system that anxiety works on is the same system as our stress system. So those of you who heard me speak, like, it was like a year ago, I think, on stress, it's the same physiological system that works for anxiety and for stress. So the interesting thing to think about is where is your baseline? You know on that 0 to 10 scale. Because if life is throwing a lot at you right now and you are having to juggle a lot, you might not feel super stressed, but in brain terms, your brain is already having to deal with quite a lot. So that system is already switched on with a raised baseline. So you might be thinking, well, actually, yeah, I've got a lot on at the moment. My head is buzzing. I'm always at like three or four or five. Maybe you're even higher than that. There's a lot of times in life where things get thrown at you. I'm, I'm in that wonderful age where I've got still relatively small children, and now my parents are moving to stay with me as well because they need care. You know, believe me, there can be times in life where your brain is, is, is having to work pretty hard to keep up with all the things you've got to keep track of. Maybe you're having a tough time at work. Maybe you've got a, a new manager and, and, and they're, they're stressing you out. Maybe you're experiencing some bullying. Maybe you've got exams or studying or a big presentation, something you've got to do. All these things raise your baseline. Maybe you have a, huge, a long commute. Did you know one of the most classic things to raise your sort of stress baseline is commuting? Commuters beware. If you're already at seven... You can imagine that it doesn't take much of a stimulus, much of a trigger, for you to get pushed into the hijack zone. So very often what happens with anxiety is that the life has been stressful and difficult anyway, and people get to this point where they start to feel literally on the edge. It's like the slightest thing pushes me into a zone where I start to freak out. I start to handle it really badly. And actually when you're in that place, what your brain says is, is, is run away, hide. You can't deal with anything. Go and sit in a darkened room where nothing's going on. There's very low risk of any triggers, anything that you need to worry about. So interestingly, one of the issues with anxiety can be as much about our response to it as it is about the anxiety itself. Why? Because if you do that, imagine my son. So he's terrified of spiders. His instinctive response is he never wants to go near spiders ever. So he will never learn if I let him do that, that actually spiders are basically okay. They're not scary. In fact, they're quite interesting. 
Okay, some of you don't look convinced, but they are, they are. I'm going to convince my son of this. <laughs> because what your brain starts to believe is, is the only reason that this terrible worst case scenario, I don't know what his is, presumably he thinks the spider's going to eat him or something, I don't know. But the only reason that isn't happening is because he's avoiding them. I developed, when, when I was a kid, I got stuck in a lift when I was seven. We were on holiday and there was a power cut while we were in there. And um, actually we were only in there for, for a matter of minutes, my, my parents say. But in my mind it was much longer and it was terrifying. And I still to this day, I can visualize some of the scenes and some of the things I saw when we were stuck in that lift it was incredibly powerful to me as a seven-year-old child so I didn't didn't go in lifts it's quite simple I just didn't go in them because lifts were scary and if I went in one I might get stuck again but the problem is is that in the short term that makes you feel like your anxiety is under more control because if I don't expose myself to the scary thing I don't feel scared problem solved but more and more, I started to get this thing that I, I kind of believe that if I did go in a lift, I was definitely going to get stuck. The only reason I wasn't getting stuck in a lift again was because I wasn't going in them. So what happens then, of course, is that my anxiety of lifts starts to grow. So at first, I just didn't like to go in them, but I would if I had to. But as I grew up... I, they, that became less and less pleasant. And I was very much going into this hijack zone. So my mum would, would, would tell you about times when I was a young teenager where I would freak out. It's like, get me out of here now. I have to, and I would just run out of the lift. I would press the alarm button. I'd be anything to get out of there. So dial on, I ended up as a med student. When you're working in a hospital that's got eight floors and you have to answer a crash call and you have to get there, you either get really, really fit or you get over your fear of lifts. And to do that, what I had to do was start to expose myself to lifts again because I had to retrain my brain that actually this thing wasn't that terrifying. And we'll talk about that a bit more later. But the key thing here is that the problem with anxiety doesn't always have to be the anxiety itself. It can be your response to the anxiety. And that's why it grows. That's the forest fire thing. So my, my husband is a, is a lawyer. He's what I call a professional nitpicker. I don't know if there's any other lawyers here tonight. He'll never listen to the tape, so to the recording, so it's fine. Um, he is an incredibly good lawyer. He is wired to spot the slightest risk in anything. He doesn't do anything and if there's any risk involved with it. But he's a little bit prone sometimes to struggling with anxiety. And I remember when we were first married, um, which slightly, slightly shows my age these days. But, you know, we had one of those cars that you had to actually lock all the doors individually. Remember those? Yeah, you had to turn the key and then you had to walk around to the other door and turn the key there. And, and when we first got our car that had a blip blip thing on it, Bloop, bloop, and then every, ooh, everything's locked. But, but, but my husband, James, uh, would, would have to go and check them, just to check it had worked. Because, you know, don't trust technology in any way. So he'd bloop, bloop, and then he'd check the door. But what happened one day, he bloop, bloop, and then he checked the door, and then he thought, I'm just going to check the other door. And then before you know it, so now every time he bloop, bloop, he has to check this door and then go around and check the other door. And then one day, he's like, bloop, bloop, check one door, check the other door. We're walking off. And he's like, I just, I'm just going to check the boot. This is how anxiety grows. Because you start to think, as long as I'm avoiding any risk, as long as I'm checking, as long as I'm doing this, it's all going to be okay. 
But so my son started off just not really, he, I mean, he wouldn't have wanted to have a spider crawl up him, but he was okay with it. But the minute he started avoiding them, it becomes much bigger. And incredibly quickly, we get to the point where he's freaking out about anything that could be a spider. When he was a toddler, he couldn't say, we, grew, we um, were living in France then, so he was dealing with a whole bilingual thing. So he couldn't say spider or fly and so he used to he used to just say floor and and everyone in our family remembers the floor phase where my son anything that looked like it, any a speck of dust anything at all he he would freak out floor floor it's there it's there and he got it got ridiculous and that's what happens with anxiety it grows and it spreads and some of you will have experienced that. And it's amazing how quickly, you know, if working as a psychologist has taught me one thing, it's how quickly normal people can behave in, in extraordinary ways because of the impact that their emotions have upon them. So you, you go out and you have, um, you have a bad experience. I worked with um, a young woman once who went out and um, she had a stomach bug and she, she was in the supermarket and she threw up everywhere. It was very embarrassing. It was just a bad moment. But what that triggered then for her, the next time she goes to the supermarket, she felt incredibly anxious, really anxious. And um, so she started to not go to the supermarket except when she absolutely had to. But then one day she went to the supermarket and she had a panic attack, which we'll talk about later. Then she's definitely not going to the supermarket again. Internet shopping solves everything, not a problem. Until the day that she's in a pub and she, suddenly she can feel the same anxiety. And she's like, oh my goodness, it's any crowded space I can't handle. So then she's like, okay, well, I can't do that. I certainly can't come to church. Those of you who come to church, I can't do cinemas. She starts to narrow and narrow and narrow down the things that anxiety is stealing away from her. And by the time she came to see me, she was struggling to get out of the house. And she was really scared because she's thinking, I'm going to have to give up my job. I can't drive anywhere. What am I going to do? And this is how quickly anxiety can take hold because our response to withdraw, to try and avoid the thing that we're scared of, actually builds it up. So I want to, to talk to, to sort of finish, and then you can be thinking of questions and things that you want to ask me by thinking about five things that we can do to respond better, therefore, to anxiety. How do we respond to it in a helpful way to stop it from becoming such a big issue for us? So the first one is about seeing through it. See through your anxiety. See it for what it is. It's not telling you truth. So just because being in a certain, certain situation makes you feel very anxious, it doesn't mean that something bad is definitely going to happen. So it's a bit like, it's, it's a big fake really, it's a bit, bit like you go past a house and there's a big beware of the dog sign and you can hear like big barking dog sounds, it sounds terrifying. So of course you don't, you don't go anywhere near the house, you walk around the long way. But if you peered over the gate, you'd see like a little tiny yappy thing. Actually, it's a big fraud. It's not as bad as it sets itself out to be. We have to recognize this about anxiety, that, that, that sometimes it isn't the emotion itself that's the problem. It's our fear of our fear that's the problem. So I don't know um, how many of you have read the Harry Potter books. Um, but there's a character in the Harry Potter books, one of the baddies, one of the nasty things, called a Dementor. You've got a Dementor. It's the next, that's it, that's... 
the Dementor. And these are, these are characters that J.K. Rowling wrote based on her own experiences of anxiety and depression. And she talks about these big black things and they steal all the life out of you and they make you, they make you feel like you'll never be happy again and you feel cold and you feel horrible and this awful physical sensation. And, and there's a story in one of the books where Harry, the main character, is talking to one of his teachers and they're talking about what is the thing that Harry is most scared of. Now, in the Harry Potter books, there is a big baddie, because there's always a big baddie, called Voldemort. So the teacher assumes that this is what he's going to say he's most scared of. But it isn't. Actually, what he says he's most scared of is the Dementors because of the way they make him feel and, and the, the thoughts that they cause in his mind and all of the whole package. And the teacher says to him, well, Harry, that suggests to me that your greatest fear is fear itself. And he says, that's very wise. And it is very wise because do you know what? Your life is much more likely to be negatively impacted by your anxiety, than by the thing that you're scared may happen. Think about it. If you think about it in the last six months, how many of the things you worried about, how many of the things that kept you awake at night, how many of those things actually happened? Not necessarily that many of them. And the interesting thing about anxieties as well is that even if the dreaded thing does happen, in general, dealing with it face-to-face in the moment is not as bad as worrying about it. People say the worst thing was the weeks of worrying about it because at least in the moment you can do something. Because this is our problem as human beings that we deal with not just the anxieties of the present moment, but we anticipate stuff that may or may not and probably never will happen. So we need to recognize that sometimes the anxiety is the problem, not the thing it's trying to alert you of. So my son's problem isn't the basic horrific tendencies of spiders. Because actually in this country, there's just, there just isn't a problem with them. His problem is the fact that he's anxious of them. And, and that's what hopefully, because this is what's so great if you have a psychologist as a parent. I think it's like having a doctor as a parent. We're not really interested unless you're practically dying. Psychologist as a parent, we're just like, mm, we, we can sort that. Yeah. So remember this point. You will never 100% eradicate anxiety from your life. And let me say something to you if you're sat here thinking, yeah, I'm one of those people, though. I'm just, I am a bit prone to anxiety. Some people are. There are variations in our personality for how anxious we are, but your tendency to be anxious. Let me say to you that it's often linked with intelligence. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. You're going to remember that. (laughs) My husband would like me to say that very much. So people whose minds are very active are often more prone to anxiety and worry. And it's almost as though you're not very, it's a bit hyperactive. It's like, okay, stop now. You don't need to be analyzing anymore. Just relax. But your brain is still continuously ticking on, ticking on. And you also find it harder to stop those circular anxious thoughts. You know, the ones that don't go anywhere. You just go round and round and round with the same anxious thought. But don't despair if that's you. Every single personality characteristic has a good side and has a potential Achilles heel, a potential weakness. So like I say, my husband is a little bit prone to nitpicking. He can be a bit of a worrier. He has been known before several times to be caught sitting up in bed worrying because he can't think what he should be worrying about. Genuinely, he makes lists of things that maybe he should be worrying about to check which one he's forgotten to worry about. 
But he's a very good lawyer. If you ever need a lawyer, nothing will get past my husband. He is very good at that. So your tendency to be a bit anxious probably also means that there are other things that you're really, really good at. What it means is that your Achilles heel, your weakness may be that if you're ever going to struggle, particularly in times of stress or when life is chucking difficult stuff at you, it's probably going to be anxiety. You're going to need to be careful about that. You're going to need to learn some really good strategies for managing your anxiety. You're going to need to be on top of it. You're going to need to watch out for it. It might be your early warning system if you are a bit stressed out that you start to to feel your anxiety rising. So don't despair if that's you. You don't need to 100% eradicate anxiety from your your, your life. You just need to change who's in control a little bit. Because one of the problems with our emotions when they start to cause big problems is that we've kind of promoted them in our brain. If you think of your brain as like a company, your your anxiety, your emotions are at best people who warn that there might be a problem. They were never supposed to run the show. And if you promote your emotions to run your brain, all manner of chaos will ensue, believe me. So sometimes it's just about redressing the balance so that you feel more in control instead of your emotions being in control. But we need to not be afraid of them. So the second thing for how we manage anxiety better is about dealing with this baseline. Are you just stressed out? You can see I have a, I have a cat. This is not my cat. But... We are not always as chilled out as our cats, those of you who have cats. I think my cat has a pretty simple life. Sometimes I envy him. And if you know you're in that place where life is throwing a lot of stuff at you, if you are very busy, if you are juggling a lot of stuff, definitely if you have small children, because that immediately puts you in that category. But if work is very demanding, if you are pulling some long hours, if you are really pushing the limits of what your mind can do, Be aware that this is likely to raise your baseline. And one of the things that that does is it makes you more prone to anxiety, more prone to worrying incessantly about things that normally wouldn't bother you. And if you've had that experience where you're like, why am I I obsessing over this? Why am I still awake thinking about this thing? And you're not sure why. Maybe you need to think about where your baseline is. And if you are someone who lives a high-stress lifestyle then you need to think about long-term, how do I manage this so that anxiety and stress don't start to get the better of me? And this is where mindfulness comes in, which we hear so much about. So I've been speaking and talking in in schools um, as as well as with adults for for over a decade now. And and mindfulness, when it first came, was like, ooh, this new thing. We start to explain about mindfulness. And now I was doing a a class thing today. We did an assembly, and then we did a thing with the class. And I was like, does anyone know what mindfulness is? All of them know. They could tell me more about mindfulness. Turns out their teacher teaches them in every form time. Like, okay, fine. So mindfulness has become very popular, but what actually is it? So the original term, the original concept for mindfulness came from a very wise guy who one day was just washing the dishes. And what he observed in himself, he had a moment where he just, it was almost, you know those moments where you step back and you look at yourself as though you're looking at yourself from outside. And he realized that what he was doing is as he was washing the dishes, he, his mind was buzzing away with a thousand other things. He's thinking about the things that he needs to do next, what he should have done earlier, what he's got to do tonight, the, the problems he's got to solve in work. His mind was buzzing. And he stopped and, and he writes about this in, in the original text. And says, I wonder what difference it would make to my life and my calmness and my peace and stuff, if when I wash the dishes, I 
just washed the dishes. And he writes this wonderful lyrical piece about dishwashing. So if you have some to do when you get home tonight, this is such a great opportunity. Where he starts to talk about how he stopped and instead of thinking about, he focused his mind on the current moment on what he was doing. And he felt the warmth of the water. And he saw the way that the light caught in the bubbles and he heard the squeak of the clean plates as he's moving them. And he became focused on the present moment. And this is where the concept of mindfulness comes from. And it comes from just pausing sometimes in your busy day when your mind is buzzing. Because one of the great things about our 21st century life is the buzz, isn't it? I love the buzz, the energy, 600 things happening at once. You know, when my daughter sits down to watch telly, she's, she's not just watching telly, she I caught her today when she got home from school. She's watching telly. She's got her laptop on her lap and her phone in her hand. So she's watching uh, an old episode of her favorite show. She's doing her maths homework and she's texting her friend all at the same time. And apparently she can do all those things really well. So we as a culture are becoming more and more mindless. When you ate your lunch today, how many people looked down to finish their sandwich and discovered you already finished your sandwich? Ever had that happen? It's very disappointing if it's chocolate. I think, where's my chocolate? Oh my goodness, I finished it and I didn't even notice. That is mindless living, mindless eating. Your brain is so focused on one thing, you don't notice what you're doing in the present moment. And mindfulness has been demonstrated now time and time again in research to be hugely beneficial to that baseline because it enables us just to stop and pause for a minute and slow down. And it takes some of the stress away from your brain and simplifies things just for a minute. It helps you become more aware of the the warning signals that you're not listening to from your own body. So if your body triggers an emotion to warn you about something and you ignore it because you're busy, you probably don't even notice it. You felt a bit nervous, I don't know, I didn't notice it. Was I a bit tense? I don't know, I didn't notice. It's like when my son was little, those of you who have small kids, if one of your kids wants something and you know you're like on the phone or you're trying to do something and they come and they're like tugging and they're like, mommy, and you ignore them, do they go away? If they do, please, please, please come and tell me afterwards how you do that because mine don't. Well, one of mine's a lot older. She's taller than me. She doesn't really tug on my trousers anymore. But the other one is. But your emotions are like that. They just grow. They escalate. They get bigger. And one of the problems we have with our emotions is that we often don't recognize them until they're already quite big. And they're much more difficult to deal with. So mindfulness is about becoming more aware and just sometimes pausing and saying, hang on. Let's just stop for a minute. Maybe let's just do a couple of nice deep breaths. Let's think, what's going on right now? What am I thinking about? How am I feeling? Am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Am I feeling tired? Is my brain buzzing with something? Is there something I could do to deal with one of these thoughts in my mind? And that's the essence of what mindfulness is. So we can become more mindful. We can grab moments, little things like when you take your lunch, instead of doing it at your desk while you're working, because I know that's what everyone does. I do as well. But sometimes going, you sit on, sit on a park bench and eat, just eat your lunch. When's the last time you did that? We were in France for two years. I cannot tell you how offended the French get if you eat at your desk. It is deeply shocking to them that you would ever waste something as important as a meal by not concentrating on it fully. My husband used to hide snacks in his desk drawer and he would have to sort of furtively shovel them in so that he could keep working. 
But in our culture, we do it all the time. So maybe introduce some more mindful stuff in your life. Take some moments sometimes. Explore some relaxation opportunities. Think about how you can drop your baseline. Stop trying to do everything all the time. And sometimes give your brain a rest and simplify it. And then you can reduce the chance that you'll get hijacked. Because if your baseline is down at one or two, then a little wave of emotion, a little challenge of anxiety is still going to be well within your naught to five zone. Perfectly easy for you to deal with. But you know what it's like if you've had one of those days and you're right up on the edge and you're at the limit, the slightest thing is going to push you over the edge. You know, those are the evenings when your, your husband comes home and says something like, or your wife comes home and, and says something like, did, did you manage to pick up the dry cleaning? And it's like they've unleashed some kind of monster from within you. Because you were right on the edge. It only took a tiny thing and all full meltdown is going to ensue. So that's number two. Think about where your baseline is. And this can be very important if, you, if anxiety has become uh, very difficult for you. The third thing then is about intervening early. So if you think of that 0 to 10 scale, as I say, the risk is, is that for some of us, we are not very good at dealing with our emotions. Maybe life has taught you some difficult lessons about emotions. Maybe life has taught you that your job is to keep quiet and not cause any bother to anyone. Maybe life has taught you that there isn't anything you can do with your emotions. Maybe life has taught you that you shouldn't have them, that they're a bad thing. Maybe you've grown up in a, a family or a culture that says that shouting or being anxious is bad and you should just push them, push them down. The risk in all of those things is that your response to emotions, if you possibly can, is just to try and ignore them. <clears throat> Maybe it's just that you are in a place where there's so much stuff being thrown at you, you have to just suppress your emotions just to get through the day. If you have got a toddler who, like my, my son, when he was uh, two, at the ages of two to three, he spent most of his time, as far as I can remember, lying on the floor and screaming. It is no good in those situations if you just react all over the place. You have to suppress some of your emotions just to get through the day. Who, I don't know if there's any teachers in the house teachers teachers and a couple of teachers I don't I don't even know how you guys do it because like I did I did a uh, what a 15 minute assembly today and then half an hour and they were annoying me by the end of that how you spend a whole day with them I don't know the thought I mean just one one of my own well she's not even a teenager I mean she's 11 nearly 12 one of them is enough how you manage with a whole room full of them and then do that all day I just don't know you guys, you have to learn how to suppress some of what you're feeling because it's part of your job. So there's all kinds of reasons why you might not be very good on picking up on emotions when they're in that naught to five scale. But the risk then is that your experience of them becomes very scary because when you first become aware of them, they are the big scary versions of an emotion. So you don't experience anxiety as sort of milder anxiety, a little bit of discomfort. When you become aware of it, it's when it's full-blown, about to become a crisis. So your experience of anxiety is, well, I, there's not much I can do with it. It feels pretty awful. There's another big risk, particularly with anxiety, if we don't identify it quick enough, because it's so physical, isn't it? You experience it so physically, and it can feel really unpleasant. So if you're really 
tense and stressed and you're also then in an anxious moment or you're in a meeting or there's a bit of an adrenaline moment, you can experience a whole host of physical symptoms which can be really scary. So your heart will start racing, but you might also experience palpitations like weird extra beats, missed beats. It suddenly starts to feel thuddy and really all over the place in a way that you don't normally experience it. You might start to feel dizzy, lightheaded. You might sweat a lot. You might feel fingers and toes tingling. You might feel even chest pain. I've seen people really, really experiencing chest pain because of the way when you're anxious, your breathing changes and the tension that you carry in your muscles. All of that combination of how you're feeling, if you don't identify that that is anxiety, the risk is, is you think, well, call an ambulance because something really bad is happening here. And that anxiety then, of course, triggers more anxiety, which makes the symptoms worse, which triggers more anxiety, which makes the symptoms worse. And what I'm describing is how easily you can get into what we call a panic attack. And I'm finding when I'm talking to people both one-to-one but also in, in general conversations that panic attacks are becoming increasingly common. And maybe that's because our baseline is so high, that our baseline stress is so high. I don't, I don't know. We could, we could debate that. But we need to recognize anxiety for what it is and recognize some of these physical symptoms for what they are. Because ultimately, if you can deal with your emotion when it's lower down that 0 to 10 scale, it's much easier. A match is much easier to put out than a forest fire. And one of some of the problems that some of you are having is because you're trying to deal with a forest fire. Now, we, you can deal with that too, but it's much easier if you can to intervene with anxiety before it gets that dramatic. So one of the things I say to teachers in schools in particular because anxiety is very common with um, teenagers at the moment, is if you know that there's a problem developing, don't wait for it to become a huge problem before you get help, because it's much easier to deal with it when it's smaller. So how do you deal with it? How do you drop your baseline of anxiety or stress? And it's about one of the most simple things you can do is, is looking at how you're breathing. And studies that look at the physiology of anxiety and stress have demonstrated that the most effective way in the moment to drop your level on that scale down is to change the way you breathe and to breathe really well. So let's, let's have a little go. Let's have a little go. You might want to sit, sit up a little bit. Put your hands on your rib cage for a minute. And you know, it's that weird thing that the minute you start thinking about your breathing, you can't do it properly, isn't it? You're like, okay, now I'm like, am I breathing? I'm not sure. But now what I want you to do is try and take like a really nice deep breath. And you're going to breathe not just with the top of your lungs. You're going to breathe right through the whole expanse of your lungs. A really nice breath. And you, hopefully you'll feel, if you have both your hands on, I can't do it because of the mic, but you'll feel your hands actually move apart because your lungs are expanding. It's strangely satisfying breathing like that, isn't it? Have another go. Oh, yeah, I can hear. It's nice because so rarely do we breathe really properly like that. And there's something about breathing really well like that that helps to drop it. It's to do with the level of different um, gases in your bloodstream. I won't go into all the science because, frankly, it's not that interesting. But 
Basically, if you breathe really well like that, you can change the levels of those gases and it drops your physiological stress level right down. It's one of the reasons why um, people who are sports professionals, they will teach them breathing techniques before a key moment in a match or whatever it is that they're doing because it's the most effective way. So if you take a moment sometimes and just take a few breaths like that, you will feel your anxiety and your stress level dropping. There's something else, uh, uh, another way of doing that, called 478 breathing. And what this is about is about the length of time that's involved in each part of taking a breath. So let's have a go at this. What we're going to do is you're, you might you can put your hands on your ribcage or not. You don't have to. That's fine. But what we're going to do is, in a minute, I'm going to do the counting. And we're going to breathe in for a count of four. We're then going to hold our breath. Well, you are. I'll be talking. But um, you're going to hold your breath for a count of seven. Now, don't worry. This is not like a long seven. But you're going to hold it for a count of seven. Then you're going to breathe out for a count of eight. And when you breathe out in particular, instead of just sort of going, you're going to breathe out slowly in a nice controlled way. So when I'm doing this with younger kids, I say, imagine that you have a row of candles and you're going to blow them out. Nice and controlled, gradually just emptying your lungs. And again, you're, when you breathe in, you're trying to fill right to the bottom. When you breathe out, you're trying to just empty that out. So, are you ready? You don't have to do this if you'd rather just watch other people doing it, then that's fine. But um, <laughs> So, get yourself nice and set ready, and we're going to have a go. So, ready, steady, take a nice breath in. Two, three, four. Now, hold it. Two, three, four. Five, six, seven, and out. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Very good. Now, what's interesting about four, seven, eight breathing is that it's the actual numbers aren't that you know vital. The key thing is that you breathe out for longer than you breathe in, and the holding it as well because it enables the gas exchange to happen in your lungs. But studies using that breathing technique have demonstrated it to be incredibly effective at dropping your anxiety levels. Are you, are you feeling calm? Relatively calm. Okay, fine. Well, you can do some more while I'm still talking. One interesting thing, if you ever struggle, if your anxiety ever keeps you awake at night, or if you struggle with switching your mind off, there are lots of studies that show 478 breathing to be very effective against insomnia. Now, don't set yourself the aim of doing like 50 of those breaths because it's actually quite, it's hard work, isn't it? Three, four, I mean, I, I, that would be the most for me. If I ever do this, I'll, three or four is enough for me. So don't be overambitious with this, but just imagine that, just taking a moment. So remember that 0 to 10 scale. What if you started to think, well, when I get to 3 or certainly 4, certainly 5, what if I just nip to the ladies or the gents and I just shut the door just for a second and I pause and I have a bit of a mindful moment, but I just do a couple of really good breaths. You'll be able to drop your anxiety level back down, go back into your meeting or whatever it is that you're dealing with, and you'll deal with it so much better. So it's about intervening early, and it's about feeling more in control. So you're not at the mercy of your anxiety anymore. There's stuff that you can do. 
So number four of my five ways is then about challenging your anxiety. And that's that key point. Because you know that thing, I don't know if you ever played that game where you're a kid and you're going up the stairs and your parents are following you up. And I do this now with my son because as parents, we can't help ourselves. Um, as the parent, you chase the kid, don't you? You know, oh, I'm coming to get you. And as a kid, do you remember that feeling? Even though you know it's your dad, it's scary, but in a kind of exciting way. <laughs> and my son loves it. It's hilarious. Do it like every night because I'm just trying to get him up the stairs and into bed. Anything can be scary if you're running away from it. So one of the things we do to take the sting out of anxiety is we turn around and we face it head on because A, it's not as bad as it feels. This is not going to kill you even though it feels like it might. The outcome is not going to be as bad as it's telling you it's going to be. We're going to face up to it and we're going to start to win back ground from it. So the anxiety that has gradually pushed you back into a corner and limited what you can do, we're going to, we're going to win some ground back off that anxiety. And so if there are specific things that you're struggling with that your anxiety has limited you from doing, particularly in phobias, you can literally make a list of the impact that it's having on you. So when I had to get over my lift phobia, this is what I did. I was a med student then, thinking, so I've got, well, come on, I've got to try and get, get to grips with this. And I made a list of all the scenarios I can think of that were scary that related to lifts. It was a very thrilling evening. So obviously at the top, I mean, because if you, if you don't mind lifts, then this won't make any sense to you, but there are whole grades of lifts. So some lifts aren't too bad, like those glass elevators in, um, you know, in shopping centers are absolutely fine. The really scary ones for me were the ones in a multi-story car parks, you know, the ones with the big metal doors that clunk shut and there's no one else around. So you think, well, if this got stuck, I could be here for days. Anyway, I'm going to make you all scared of lifts. So let's not go into it. But so I made a list of scenarios and then I put them in order of least scary to most scary. And you know what was the bottom of my list was watching people going in and out of lifts. Because that's how scared of lifts I was. If I stood um, in, in our local Tesco's, as was then, and watched people going in out of the lifts, I felt a little bit anxious. It was only like one or two anxiety, but it, it was definitely starting to trigger it. And what I did is I started at the bottom of the list. So I used to go and stand and watch people going in and out of lifts at Tesco's. Just stand there watching and after a while, I found it became less triggering for me because my brain's like, actually, do you know what? Nothing happened. Look at all these people going in the lift and coming out. No disaster. No one got stuck. Oh, interesting. So my brain is literally rewiring itself, relearning. And gradually, I worked down my list. And each time I stepped up to the next stage, I continued doing that thing until it triggered a bit less anxiety. Because that's the thing about anxiety. Your brain will learn to stop pressing the red alert all the time. <clears throat> And you can use your breathing exercises in the moments when you first start to challenge things and it is spiking some anxiety for you. But gradually you can start to win back ground. And if you're interested in this and you want to know more about how do you directly and intentionally challenge anxiety, one of my books, First Steps Out of Anxiety, takes you through how to do this. There's another side, of course, to anxiety, which is the thinking and the way that your brain is responding and, and, and the types of thinking. Because some thoughts are not very helpful. So the thoughts that say things like, this is going to end really badly, this is going to be a disaster, but also thoughts that might say things to you like, you're never going to get through this, this is going to ruin the rest of your life. 
These are not helpful thoughts to have. And sometimes we need to, to get involved in some emotional gardening, which is about weeding out the thoughts that aren't true and they're not helpful. And again, if you're interested in that, this is the root, the basis of what we call CBT. So if it was cognitive behavioral therapy, it's understanding how our patterns of thinking affect our emotions to make them stronger. So if you're interested in that, again, get hold of some of the books um, and to read up on that. How you learn to, which thoughts are unhelpful to you and can sometimes whip up your anxiety. Because some thoughts, I like to call them kindling thoughts. You know when you strike that match of an emotion and it triggers your thinking brain. And I think that you've got the same diagram, but with some more red lines. Yeah, you, it, ideally the thoughts are helpful and constructive. But if what it triggers is a load of unhelpful thoughts, it's like having a brain that's full of bits of dry wood and balled up paper. When that match ignites, it doesn't just set fire to the match. It sets fire to a whole load of stuff. And before you know it, you're not dealing with just a match of emotion. You're dealing with a bonfire that's blazing in your head, and it was only a little thing that triggered it. So think about, are there ways about the thinking that I have, the, the patterns of thinking, the worries I have, that maybe I need to, to do some work into those? And of course, it's also about watering and nurturing helpful thoughts. You can get back in control of anxiety. This need not rule the rest of your life. It is perfectly possible to live life, to achieve plenty, for it not to be dominated and ruled by your anxiety. One of my mates in Mind and Soul, Will, he is um, on the team at um, Holy Trinity Brompton. Um, a vicar, incredibly successful, does loads of interesting stuff, speaks at a lot of big events. He struggles with anxiety. It's a continual struggle for him, but it isn't limiting him. You don't have to be limited by your anxiety, so remember that. And number five is just, just to end on an important note. I'm talking a lot about ways that you can help yourself to deal with anxiety, but sometimes it isn't something that you can do on your own. It's difficult to get a perspective on our own heads. So sometimes you need a bit of help. So don't be reticent to go and ask for help with anxiety. So you can go and see your GP. You can talk about the impact that anxiety is having on you. They can suggest some stuff that might be helpful. They might be able to refer you to someone who can help you with something like CBT or maybe teach you some mindfulness. Sometimes you can refer yourself. You can find a private course or something that you can go on to learn a skill to help you to deal with anxiety. So think about that. And the final thing I'm going to say before I hand back and we can have some Q&A, because um, you guys have done great not falling asleep in an evening listening to, to me talking for all this time, but it's about medication. So there is a role sometimes for medication in dealing with and helping you to manage anxiety. I'm just going to give you a quick illustration to explain that. Imagine that life is about trying to get a boat across an ocean. There are two problems that happen in life. The first one is that sometimes we sail into storms, and it gets really rough and choppy and there's, there's waves coming over the boat. And when you're in a storm, you have to bail out water to keep going, to keep afloat, to get through the storm, hopefully to get out the other side. That's problem one. Problem two is that most of us, our boats are not 100% watertight. They leak a little bit. Most of us have some weaknesses, some stuff that we're a bit vulnerable to, to we, we worry about, we're not that confident about, whatever it is. So maybe you have to bail periodically anyway, even on a calm day. And either one of those things or a combination of them can sometimes push you into a place where anxiety or depression or any of these emotions can become a real problem. 
where you feel like literally you can't keep up with the bailing and you might be at risk of going under. Now, medication doesn't seal any of the leaks in your boat. It doesn't take away the storm. But what it does do, it's a bit like installing an artificial pump for a time. It takes some of the pressure off you. And sometimes that in itself is enough to get you through the storm and things calm down. Sometimes it means that you can then divert your attention to addressing some leaks, maybe getting some therapy, learning some skills, doing some CBT, stuff like that. I just mentioned that because I find that a lot of people struggle. They're reticent to take medication, but there is a place for it. So, so think about it. Sometimes if, you do, if you're in a real storm and life is chucking some nightmare scenarios at you, why wouldn't you make it a bit easier for yourself sometimes? There's a place for that stuff. So don't always think that you have to go this alone and don't wait for a big crisis before you ask for help. Well, I hope that that's been helpful. It's a huge topic, lots that I could have covered. You can ask some Q&A, but um, yeah, I guess I'll hand over to you guys now and you can um, ask me anything that I wasn't clear enough on. So, who's got a question, and I will come with the mic. Yes. Bit of a silly one, but can I put you on speed dial? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell my daughter you said that. Please. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Absolutely love that. Um, I identified with you saying that you have some issues with your son with anxiety. And I, um, I wondered, I'm not a qualified professional, and I'm finding it very difficult with one of our daughters who's suffering with anxiety. At what point, with she's eight years old, uh, at, at what point I would have been tempted to actually carry her into the kitchen and show her the spider wasn't real. And I mean, you took the spider out. So how do you identify at what point can you push them a bit further and at, at what point do you sort of... Yeah. That's a great question. And, you know, anxiety in kids is really, really common. And kids can show some quite alarming behavior patterns that are associated with anxiety that actually resolve themselves. So first of all, just to reassure you, I've seen some kids who, who look like really unwell with anxiety, but actually you, you dial on six months a year down the line and they're doing fine. So kids respond very well to some good help with anxiety. So I think there's some level of understanding the, the level of the problem and your level of expertise or ability. So simple childhood anxieties we, is part of our parenting challenge. And the key is to try, if we can, to help them to see that there isn't actually anything to be afraid of. But not to deny that they have anxiety. So when my son was terrified of any flying insects, and when he was then old enough to have the conversation, we talked about what is it that you're afraid might happen? And it turned out he was afraid that they were all wasps. So we talked about actually, you know, how do you recognize wasps? And, and then we, we actually went and we did some reading up on wasps and we learned, turns out they're quite interesting. I didn't, I never knew all this stuff. And we learned about things like hoverflies that look like wasps but actually aren't wasps. And all of that, we did learn some information. But what I'm doing more than that is I'm just demystifying the whole thing for him. I'm making it less scary because we're understanding it more. 
I also use the smoke alarm analogy a lot with children. And my daughter, certainly when she was six, would, 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 was heard to say, oh, it's just my smoke alarm going off. So kids, kids link onto that concept very quickly, that their anxiety is telling them that something bad might happen. So for my son, we talk about how um, actually he's scared because something might sting him, but actually that probably won't happen. It's just that his brain is saying it's a possibility. You can tell your brain that it's okay. You can switch off your smoke alarm. And also, we talked about what if the worst did happen? You have to do this with some wisdom. But so I said, do you know what? I've been stung. It was a bit uncomfortable, but it wasn't awful. mummy, Mummy will put some ice on it. So we talk through all of these things. Now, be aware that that's at lower level. If your children or child or more widely are struggling, then get some help. Go and talk to your GP. Schools are amazing. There are very often people in schools who have some skills. I think the baseline stuff is very helpful. My son is like his dad. He's wired to be quite alert. He's potentially quite anxious. So as soon there's a, a lady who I know who does mindfulness classes for children in my area. He will be going to them. <laughs> Good luck to her keeping him still for half an hour. But she says she can do it. So I think look into what other skills can you tap into. Are there experts? Are there people who you can ask for some help? And do talk about it with a GP. Okay, thank you. Any others? Right, I'm coming. Okay, food and anxiety. That's just, really interesting. Uh, one, can it? I yeah. just repeat the question yeah, for the yeah. tape? You, so, I was going uh, to, you go ahead, oh, you repeat it. Please. Sorry, <laughs> interrupting you. Yeah, the question is, uh, does the food that we eat actually have anything to do with our anxiety? Sorry. And, and I'm quite glad that you asked that because there is one food stuff in particular that we need to be aware of where anxiety is concerned. And that is caffeine. So caffeine, one, what it does is it makes you more reactive in general. And if you are prone to anxiety, you will probably find that caffeine could, could make you feel much more anxious. The other thing that caffeine does is that if you have too much of it, it the physical effects of it mimic anxiety. And your brain's not that clever. If you feel like you're probably anxious, even if actually those feelings are caused by something else, your brain interprets it as anxiety. So be very careful with caffeine if you know you are prone to anxiety. So my husband's twitchiness improved no end when I, without telling him, switched his tea bags for decaf, decaf Earl Grey. And you know, he didn't even notice the difference. So think about your levels of caffeine. If you struggle a lot with anxiety, particularly if it's having an impact on you at night, Watch it, because I find a lot of people also who are prone to being anxious are also quite reactive to caffeine. Some people, it doesn't affect them that much. Some of us, it it affects us a lot more. So that's probably the only one I would say particularly is... um, is, is caffeine. The only other one that I would think of is um, watch if you are someone who gets real sort of sh- um, sugar highs and lows. If you get very low blood sugar, the physical effects of that can be very similar to anxiety and can sometimes push people into panic because they think, am, am I panicking? And actually, they, they just need to eat something. So I think in general, eating regularly, looking after yourself, having a healthy diet, all of those things help you feel better and that will help you to tackle anxiety as well. Great. Thank you. Anyone here? Hi, Kate. Oh, my voice is terrible. Um, my kids have got a lot of anxiety. 
I lost my husband two years in August. And my daughter's following all the time on me. Hard. I can't talk, sorry. It's okay. So, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a dangerous game and sort of interpret what I think you're asking. So if I don't, then ask again or, or, or get, get someone else to ask it for you. Because, by the way, everyone is doing amazing at speaking with a microphone. Because if you do feel a bit anxious, that's often the most scary thing in the world. So um, feel free to whisper a question to somebody, to, to Liz, and um, she can ask it for you. But... So the difficulty for kids with traumatic, unexpected events is it, as a kid, we have, we, they live in a bit of an illusion, which is that the world is basically a, a safe and very predictable place. So basically, really unexpected, scary things just don't happen. It's all very predictable and logical. So people only die when they're old because that's just how the world works. And I think something like that, what happens for children is it challenges one of these basic things. The reason they believe that is because when they get older and they realise that isn't the case, they're more equipped with the way their brains have developed to understand and to manage what that means, therefore, that actually the world is, is more frightening than that. And sometimes these things can happen at any stage. And if sometimes kids have had those experiences younger, it's forced them to deal with something that maybe they're not equipped in themselves to manage. So I would really encourage you to get some support for your kids to talk through the anxieties that that's triggered because it will help them tremendously, even two years down the line, to, to process what's happened. Because the other illusion, of course, that kids have, um, certainly in, in, until they hit adolescence, is that... that as, parents you can pretty much solve everything anything can't you there's ve there's nothing that that mommy daddy can't do and and losing a parent challenges in the most basic way that belief that they have so they need help to process that it's a massive change even for us as adults if we lose someone who's close to us don't underestimate the the level of work your brain has to do to reassess everything about life and the world and and, and the beliefs that, that you had about it. So for a child, that's even more challenging. So get some help. There are some fantastic um, organizations that work with children and grief and anxiety around that stuff. But I would encourage you, they, they will work through that stuff with good support. It needn't affect them long term. So do be encouraged by that. Kids have an amazing capacity to, to figure stuff up and bounce back from it. So, yeah. Should we just take one more? Kate, okay, that's what it sounds like. Um, I would appreciate if you could make a distinction, define a little bit more for me, what do you mean by anxiety and when does it become a phobia? Because I, how do you see that? Okay, yeah, yeah. So I could tell you the precise clinical definitions that I as a psychologist would use. And this question goes wider to when is anxiety a problem? Um, when is it a clinical condition? When am I ill, if you like? But I'm not going to do that because actually I think the more useful thing for you is to think, is this having an effect on my life? So you could say to me, when did my thing about lifts become a phobia? And I think there's probably two answers. One is when it was having an effect on me because I was aware that it was affecting my behavior. It was making me do things that I didn't want to do, although I was a kid, so it was my parents who were probably more aware of that. But the real time that it became a problem for me was when I, it was affecting, it was limiting what I could do and I needed to be able to do that. 
So my son could grow up his whole life scared of spiders. You know, my mother's terrified of them. It's never really affected her, and it's not a problem. But if it starts to affect his life so that he's scared to go, in, to go and play in certain places, he won't go into the garden because he's scared that he might see a spider. We need to do something about that. Anxiety should never steal your joy. So I think that's my question, is to say, you need to think about, is there something here that... <clears throat> Is it stealing my joy? Is it stealing ground for me? And I would encourage all of us, let's not think, let's wait till I'm ill before I do something about this. Let's not let anxiety steal the joy out of our life. Let's not let it steal your potential. So you could go your whole life managing perfectly well with the fact that you, if you don't do public speaking, incredibly common anxiety thing. Um, we At our church, we do a whole course on public speaking, and this is the, the anxiety section is one of the longest ones. It might never affect you, but what if you're limited in your career because you can't lead a meeting <clears throat> or because you can't give a good presentation? Suddenly, I'm thinking, you're not ill, but I think that your anxiety is limiting you, so maybe you'd benefit from some help with it. Do you see the difference? So I think that's probably my answer to your question, yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was just amazing, wasn't it? So, so helpful. Um, it's quarter past nine, so we've got uh, 15 minutes or so for you to have a look at some of the books that I know are amazing. Um, Kate referred to Mind and Soul. There's a website um, which has got the most amazing resources on it. I do strongly urge you to yes, have a look at it. Yes, do check out mindandsoul.info, mindandsoul.info. Yeah. Did you check that out? Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming and for being such great listeners. And uh, don't forget to put the 15th of May in your diaries for yes, I'm back again. the next visit. If an hour of me wasn't enough, <laughs> then you can come back again. Yeah, thank you.